0: Let's open our Bibles to Mark chapter 14. Mark 14 verse 32. If you're visiting for the first time, welcome. Um, There's a connection card in the bulletin that you tear off. We'd love for you to get that to us. You can put it in the bucket just so we have information about you. We'll send you something in the mail. Say hello. But also, if you're visiting, what we do is we go through verse by verse, taking a book of the Bible at a time, and it takes a couple years to get through a book, and then we go to another book. So we are in the book of Mark, and uh, we all the month of December, we were going through Advent, and uh, the beginning of January, we talked about our vision this year, which is scripture, get involved, and pray. Um, We're back to Mark. So we are got got about two months left in the book of Mark, and then we're actually going to talk about spiritual gifts. So, Mark chapter 14, 32 through 42. Let's read that, and then we will dive in. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to... He said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? See, my betrayer is at hand. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus, and we thank you for your word. We submit to its authority, and we ask this morning that you would help us to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Lord, I pray the littlest ears in this room, to the oldest ears in this room, and online, that you would open our hearts to see wonderful things from your law. Lord, we ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Garden of Gethsemane is one of those moments in Scripture that uh, is, again, a famous section of Scripture, and it follows the Last Supper. So just to bring us all up to speed on where we were back in November, which was the last time we talked about this, Jesus has had the Last Supper. He's actually had the conversation about this is my body, and this, is, uh, this cup is the blood of the new covenant. He's had that conversation, and he's also told them that you are all going to betray me. And then Peter gets really excited and says, even if the rest of them will betray you, I won't. I'll be with you the death. And Jesus tells them, tell you the truth, the rooster's going to crow multiple times before the morning and you are going to betray me so all of that's happened that means the disciples are decidedly depressed the atmosphere in Jerusalem has increased in hostility and so Jesus is having them go to a place called Gethsemane which is a place throughout the gospel they have been multiple times it was well known to the disciples it was a garden it's at the foothills of the Mount of Olives it means the place of the oil press it's in an olive grove it would have been beautiful it would have been a great place to meet a great place in between in the countryside as you're going in and out of Jerusalem had been a great place and so they utilized it frequently it's one of the reasons that Judas knew exactly where Jesus was because Judas is not here Remember, Jesus said, what you do, go do it quickly. So that's where we are. That's where Jesus is. And this story, this moment in the life of Christ is one of the most powerful moments because this moment, maybe more than any other moment in his life, reveals the anguish that he experienced in his humanity. This moment is utter Anguish. And let's, that's what I want to look at uh, a little more closely this morning. So, in verse 34, Jesus says that he is sorrowful even unto death. And I don't know if you have ever felt that feeling. Some people have felt the feeling of intensity, of sorrow, of it's not like a depression, it's more like the intensity of a moment that, that comes to bear that you are face-to-face with something that is overwhelming, and that's where Jesus is at. Overwhelming isn't strong enough of a word, because some of us use that all the time, I just feel overwhelmed. Jesus is not simply saying, I feel overwhelmed. Jesus is saying I am sorrowful unto death. Something has happened when he goes to the garden. What's happening is the reality of what is about to take place has hit Jesus like a ton of bricks. Now, it's it's not like he didn't know what was coming. All through the Gospel of Mark, he's been predicting his death and his resurrection. When he predicted it to Peter, he Peter's like, no, 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 no. No, that's not going to happen. And he said, get behind me, Satan. Remember that? Jesus has been predicting it over and over. It's not like he didn't know. Jesus said, this is why I've come. In fact, if you look, you don't have to turn here, but in John chapter 12, Jesus says, this is before the Garden of Gethsemane, He says, now is my soul troubled. He's having a moment of trouble in his soul as he's looking forward, and he says, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. That's something Jesus had said months prior. He's on his way to the cross. He knows that's what he's doing, but now... This very day, he stands before Pontius Pilate. This is is after midnight. Now he knows this is where, this is it. This is it. And he knows it. And the reality of that moment is so intense that he is sorrowful unto death. This is not a regular sorrow. This is the intensity of knowing something monumental is about to occur, and it's monumental in the most negative of ways. I was reading in the commentary uh, from William Lane that I've been using, and he makes this comment, Jesus goes looking uh, into, the, into the future, which he knows on the other side is glory and eternity in heaven, but in the immediacy he's looking into hell. That is where Jesus is at. Since Jesus knew it was coming, why in the world is he so distraught? Let's look exactly at what he does. Look at verse 34. He said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even the death. Remain here and watch. Then going a little further... He fell on the ground and prayed. I have seen people I have seen people collapse under sorrow. At funerals. They approached the moment that they were dreading. The loved one in the casket You know that they're dead. But the moment hits you like a ton of bricks when you look at them in the casket, the finality of closing the lid. Does anybody know what I mean? Maybe when your mother or your father or someone you loved has passed away, the finality of the moment hits you. And and you I've seen people collapse. Jesus has either collapsed under the weight of the moment. Or he has thrown himself prostrate, prostrate before the Lord, saying, "Is there another way?" That is the intensity of what's happening in the garden. It is. It is not. It's not an irony. It's. A, it's purposeful. That Gethsemane means place of the oil press, where they press the oil and or press the olives until the oil comes out. They're, There's a reason that he's in a garden that has something to do with being squeezed and pressed because that's what's happening to Jesus. The question you've got to ask is, if he knows, what's causing this level? The answer is actually really simple. The holy, sinless, perfect Son of God is about to have laid on him the sin of the world. And, as a result, he is going to drink of the cup of the wrath of God for that sin. No one in history has ever faced this moment. And nobody is worthy to face it. Except Jesus Christ. Nobody could face it but Him. This is God in the flesh. And we talked about this in Sunday school. This is God in the flesh facing the very purpose for which He was born. This is why Jesus was upset. It's Isaiah 53, verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What was Jesus distraught over? He was distraught over the iniquity of us all being laid on him. And Isaiah 53, verse 9 and 10 they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Several years ago, the weight of that verse hit me that it was the will of the Lord to crush the Son. Crush the Son in his wrath. Because when he looks at the sun on the cross, he sees the sin offering, the Lamb of God. That's why the song we sing at Christmas gets to me every time. Is anyone worthy? Is anyone worthy to open the scroll? Because John looks in Revelation and it says no one was found worthy to open the scroll, but the Lamb of God who was slain, he was worthy. His worthiness is in the fact that he is God and he came as a man to do this thing in Isaiah 53, to receive on himself the iniquity of us all. We all have grown up saying, Jesus died for my sin. But we say it so quick, the weight of what we're saying is easy to miss. What we're saying is, is that God laid all of our sin on Christ. All of it. All sins ever committed, all the way back to Adam's original sin, and all sins that ever would be committed, all of them are laid on Christ. And He is innocent. And yet He is going to stand in your place, taking your punishment which is the wrath of God. The cross is a part of it. The cross is this glorious moment where the Son of God takes on the sin and takes on the wrath of God. That's why in the Garden of Gethsemane, He falls on His face. He's sorrowful unto death. He's never, ever sinned and he's about to taste the wrath of God with all of our sin laid on him like a burden. It's When it says that he bears the iniquity of us all, it's laid on him. It's it's saying like a beast of burden, Those it's laid on top of him. It's not his, it's yours. It's laid on him, and he will be punished as if it were his. This moment is, it's unrepeatable and it's without question one of the focal points of all eternity. The universe will shout the praise of the Son of God for what He did. We will never get bored worshiping Jesus in heaven because as we do, new truths and glories of what He's done will be revealed to us who have been purchased by the blood he's about to shed were his. But leading up to that moment, Jesus, knowing what he has to do to go to that place of glory, is go through the cross and the wrath of God. That's why he's falling on his face. I just want to give you. Just a few verses, because sometimes people say, wait a minute, Pastor Steve, God is love, that's what John says. You're talking about wrath. Wrath sounds terrifying, and it is. This is Isaiah 51, 17. Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. Jeremiah twenty-five fifteen. Thus, Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of wine of wrath, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. Psalm 75, verse 8, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. In Revelation fourteen nine and 10, And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. The reason I'm reading these verses is the cup of wrath is frequent throughout Scripture. There are a lot more examples. And that is what Jesus prays when he says in verse uh, 36, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. The reason Jesus is asking. This is is a monumental moment. He came to do this. He knows this is the way it's going to work. It's not that He doesn't know, but He is going before the Father saying, all things are possible with you. So based on that, let this cup pass from Me. It's like saying, is there another way? Because I am at the moment... And the moment is overwhelming. But not what I will. What you will. This model of prayer is really important because there is nobody on earth, past, present, or future, that will ever be in a more difficult spot than Jesus. Nobody. Ever. There is no comparison because none of us are qualified to take on the sin of the world. So Jesus saying that demonstrates perfect submission to the will of God. This is the sovereign plan of God. This is the way that He is going to redeem mankind. This is the only way. Notice in verse 36 as he makes this perfect submission, he uses the word Abba. Now most of you know at this point that that's Aramaic for Papa or Daddy. It was not a normal way to address God. In fact, you will not find anybody addressing God this way prior. In fact, most of them were uncomfortable with the idea of calling him Father, which certainly sounds more dignified than Daddy. But Jesus has fallen on his face. You've you've got to see this He leaves his, he's got his 11. He gets the three Peter, James, and John. They come in a little closer. He leaves them there and says, Watch and pray. He walks about a stone's throw away, Luke says, and he falls on his face. Abba, Father, is there any other way? But not my will be done, your will be done. And then. He does something that really demonstrates he's the Savior. He gets up from that moment and that prayer, and he says in verse 37 he came and found them sleeping. Why am I pausing? I'm pausing because he is... Luke tells us in the parallel account in the synoptic of Luke, uh, Luke tells us that he's sweating as great drops of blood. There's some discussion on whether or not that means he was actually sweating blood. If you saw the passion of the Christ, you remember it was blood. This is medically possible. The, the blood vessels inside of the sweat glands can explode under the most extreme stress. This is medically possible, and it causes, when you sweat, it's mingled with blood. So it's possible that is what's happening. We know that, at the very least, he is drenched in the perspiration of sorrow, and, oh my gosh, this moment is overwhelming. And he gets up from that, comes back to the three in verse 37 and he finds them sleeping now if it were me and I was in this moment I would have kicked Peter right in the ribs right? you can can imagine what are you doing? don't you know how terrible this is? Is anyone worthy to open the scroll? No, not Steve Wayne. As a matter of fact, he is not worthy to open the scroll or even come close to the scroll or look at the scroll. Jesus comes back. Verse 37, he finds him sleeping. He says to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? I told you guys to watch because they're coming and he knows it. And I... I'm over here praying. I need this moment with my Father before I go down the hill. Once I go, once I go down the slope, it's just... Pff, the, the events that are coming. And he knows it's coming. But he's, he's in this last moment of sorrow seeking the Father. Is there another way? But not my will. Your will be done. And he comes back in three prized close friends, disciples, are sleeping. Now Luke tells us, Mark tells us their eyes are heavy, so they're tired, they're exhausted, they're worn out. Luke tells us it's because of sorrow. They too are sorrowful. But their sorrow, like what happens to me and you, is a sorrow that says, if I can just take a nap, maybe when I wake up, things will be better. Anybody been there? It's not wrong it's not bad. Sometimes we need sleep to get out of a moment. That's where the disciples are. They're not in a moment of faith. They're in a moment of "I just need a nap." I just uh, this reality of Jesus telling us that one of you is going to betray. He keeps telling us he's going to be crucified or he's going to die. All this stuff. This is not what we were expecting. Remember, we've talked about this all throughout Mark. None of this is what they were expecting. And they're hearing Jesus, and I don't know if they could hear the words or not. I kind of think they could. But to hear Jesus pray the way that he prayed would have not been comforting. All we've got are a few sentences. I imagine this prayer went on for a while. Who knows what all Jesus was saying in there. We get what God wants us to get. But they're hearing a prayer from from the rabbi that is not comforting. But Jesus took the time to come back and check on the disciples. Are you picking up what I'm putting down? In the middle of this moment, Jesus still cares for them. And then he goes back. He does this three times. He goes back and prays. It says the same thing. He's he's praying the same prayer. This tells me it's not wrong to pray more than once. The same thing, not my will be done but yours, but Lord, is there another way? This is why I think we should press into God in prayer. Jesus did it. He comes back and he finds them asleep again. He goes back and prays the same thing, and he comes back and finds them asleep again. Jesus is praying this perfect prayer of submission. I want to read you out of Hebrews chapter 5 what the author of Hebrews says. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. There's two lessons that I want to get out of this moment. Number one, prayer is essential in the hour of trial and temptation. Look at, look at exactly what Jesus tells them. Verse 38. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. I take that to mean that you are born again. Your heart is filled with the Holy Spirit. You want the things of God. But you also want to take a nap. You want the things of God... You also want to look at the girl or the guy a little longer than you should. You want the things of God, but you also are considering cheating on your taxes because it's not fair and the government's terrible anyway. You want the things of God, but if I tell my boss that, I'll probably be in trouble, so I'll just make something else up. You want the things of God, but I also would rather watch TV and I'm not very good at praying anyway you see what I'm saying? The struggle that all of us go through, and Jesus is saying that in the hour of trial and temptation, prayer is essential. So if Jesus is praying in his hour of trial, you and I should be praying when we have it. But the real thing that I do take away from that is, Jesus kept checking on the disciples because he loved them. That tells me that you can never think that God is too busy or too preoccupied to be concerned about what's going on in your life. Because here, in this moment, Jesus kept coming back to check on them. You can look at it as him being irritated. I'm looking at it as him checking on them. Look at verse 41. He came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. You can hear the note of resolution in his voice. You can hear the change. How many of you make a decision, and then, once you make the decision, you know, Okay, I've made the decision. You wrestle with the decision. You fight with what's going on. You're under the pressure of the moment. And like, nope, we've made the decision. We're going with it. You know what I mean? That's what you hear in his voice. You hear it. Not that the decision was ever in question with what Jesus was doing. But in that moment of agony as he's praying and saying, is there any other way? And he goes before the Father three times praying that prayer clearly the answer each time is this is the way. This is the way it works. This is what must happen. It's interesting to think that later when Peter cuts off the ear, when Jesus says to him, do you not know I could call down ten legions of angels from my Father? It's interesting to know that Jesus is aware that at any moment he can call down angels from heaven and he doesn't have to go through this. That knowledge is with him the whole time. So when we say the decision's made, the decision is completely, totally, truly and utterly made with the knowledge that he can get out anytime he wants and then nobody goes to heaven. Nobody is redeemed because all the Old Testament covenants and promises are predicated on the coming of the Messiah. They had a future faith looking forward. All of it is over. That's why this moment was so powerful. So we had a question in Sunday school, which actually is the end of my sermon, so I'm going to answer Steve's question now. And the question was this, how in the world and what in the world, how do you even answer somebody who says, if he's God, how does he have this sin put on him? Is that in essence the question, Steve? So I'll, I want to look, if you would, at Second Corinthians chapter 5. It's verse 21. The answer to the question is, and the reason, this finalizes the understanding of why he was sorrowful unto death. is because of what 2 Corinthians tells us happened. This is is kind of the gospel in a nutshell. If you're looking for a go-to verse for somebody that, just a quick verse, this is a good one for you to memorize. For our sake, for us, for our sake, He, the Father, made Him the Son, The Father made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. He who knew no sin was made to be sin so that you, and you could put in parentheses, who knew no righteousness might be made the righteousness of God in Christ. This this truth is overwhelming because Jesus in the garden is faced with the first part of the verse he had never sinned and Isaiah says the God is going to lay on the son the iniquity of us all he had never known sin and it's all going to be laid on him and the reason for that is that when we have faith in Christ because he took our sin and received the wrath of God for it all the punishment for sin was done all the requirement that God had towards sin was met in Jesus so all the righteousness of God that you need to go to heaven but cannot earn you can't help enough old ladies across the street you can't give enough to the united way you can't say enough prayers you can't do enough things God freely gives his righteousness Rob last week talked about the robe of righteousness that that when the prodigal son comes home he put that robe right around his stinky pig filth covered carcass of of a person God isn't looking for you to get all clean in his presence he makes you clean so you can be in His presence. You, you can't do it. You aren't good enough. And you never will be. And the, the freedom of that is to say, Jesus did what I could not do because He took my sin already, punished for my sin already, and exchanged my sin for His righteousness. I am now... The righteousness of God in Christ. That is staggering stuff. It's life-altering truth. Not a righteousness of my own, Paul says, but the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. It's the only way to get it. You don't get it by coming to church. You don't get it by giving offerings. You don't get it by being nice. You get God's righteousness... Through the sacrifice of His Son, He gives you His righteousness. I want to end with this. There's something else going on in the garden. <clears throat> and Hebrews 12 tells us what it is. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Well, that sounds like i got some stuff to do. You do. But here's here's how you do it. Verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter, or author and finisher, some translations say, of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God what is that verse saying he endured the cross and that process started in Gethsemane he endured the cross by looking forward to the joy that was on the other side of the cross that joy is twofold I believe theologically The glory of the Father, number one. And number two, eternal fellowship with his people. You are a part of that joy on the other side of the cross. The Father's glory and the people of God. That's what he's looking to. That's how he, in perfect submission, goes through the cross, despises the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of God. The Garden of Gethsemane is that important. And it is that, there's a lot more in the Garden of Gethsemane. But it is interesting. I want to quote, and this is, we're, we'll be done. Look, you have Sunday school and you get out early. So, that's the way this works. I want to read you the, the commentary from William Lane. Because I thought this thought was really powerful. Just as rebellion in a garden brought death's reign over man in Genesis. They sinned in the Garden of Eden. Submission in Gethsemane reversed the pattern of rebellion and sets in motion a sequence of events which defeats death itself. God took the Garden of Gethsemane to undo the Garden of Eden's sin. That is a really good thought for you to go home with this week. Let's all stand up. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this day. God, we thank you so much for your truth. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for sending your son. We thank you, Lord, that your word says whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And we pray this morning that anybody listening that doesn't know you, whether in this room or online, Lord, that you would move on their hearts, that you would open their eyes. God, we thank you so much that you perfectly submitted to the plan and will of God to redeem mankind through your death, through your resurrection. We thank you for that. God, help us to see it and live in it. Help us to savor the truth that it's not our righteousness, but it's yours. We worship you as we go. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. I think we need to give the kids a hand because they were really good today. They were awesome. So, amen. Church, you're officially dismissed. Next up, there's the sign-up sheet for the fellowship dinner.